Good afternoon and welcome everyone. Welcome to our, our esteemed panel of dermatology experts, our spectacular live audience, as well as the viewers at home that are joining in. I welcome you to our panel on the future of dermatology in the age of artificial intelligence. I am your host and moderator, Dr. Ikama Carlson. I'm a board certified dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon. I practice in San Francisco, where I'm the founder and medical director of the California Center for Dermatologic Surgery. I will begin with our introductions to our uh, panelists. So first we have um, Dr. John Koo. Dr. Koo comes to us from UCSF, where he's a professor of dermatology and the co-director of the UCSF Psoriasis Treatment Center. Dr. Koo has authored over 300 peer-reviewed articles and books. He's won a number of recognitions, including a Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Psoriasis Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Koo. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. April Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a professor and chief of dermatology at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's a renowned expert in inflammatory skin diseases, including atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. She is also a prolific contributor to our field. She's conducted over 150 clinical trials and has published more than 400 peer-reviewed articles in dermatology. Dr. Armstrong is also a recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Psoriasis Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Armstrong. Thank you for having me. And last but not least, we have Dr. Farinak Kaminger. Dr. Kaminger is a board-certified dermatologist based in Palo Alto, California, where she's the chair of dermatology at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. In addition to her regular work at Sutter Health in the Bay Area, she is also a leader of PSO Telehealth, focusing on psoriasis. Dr. Kaminger and her work in dermatology and telehealth has been cited in many media outlets, including PopSugar, Brit & Co, and Medical News Today. She's actually involved in the production of a new AI product that has the potential to affect our practice of dermatology. Welcome, Dr. Kaminger. Thank you. And on that note, this is probably a good time to tell us a little bit more about this exciting new project. So we are at the SF Derm um, Society Eczema Symposium and 100 Year Celebration, which is a very momentous occasion for the society. It's one of the oldest societies in, in um, the US. And so this is a good time to kind of reflect on the old and the new and the history of dermatology and the future. And I personally am a little biased, but think that AI is going to be a huge part of it. Um, so at this conference, we incorporated a lot of the AI information and then we're launching um, Derm GPT, which is a product of mine, um, and, and only of mine, just a disclaimer, <laughs> Dr. Mm -hmm. and Dr. Armstrong are here to tell us more about where their thoughts on where his dermatology has been and where it's going as well. So really happy to talk about it. Thank you. That is wonderful. Thank you for that introduction. Okay. And um, as Dr. Kamiger mentioned, SF Derm is celebrating 100 years of existence as a dermatologic society in the Bay Area, one of the oldest, the second oldest uh, medical society in the U.S. Um, we have about 120 dermatologists here with us and also 35 dermatology residents in training um, tuning in. Um, now, with all of this history, 100 years of history, we've undoubtedly seen changes in the way that we practice dermatology. Dr. Ku, in your experience uh, and your many years of practice, how have, can you talk about some of these changes that you've seen and how have they affected your practice? Oh, well, first of all, um, I should mention that uh, I'm an old fat. <laughs> 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 uh, I've been in dermatology almost 40 years. And that is after being in psychiatry for a while. So I hate to admit, but in one year and three months, I'm going to be 70, 70. Well, you're a young 70. Oh, thank so. you. 
you know, so yes, I have seen a whole lot of changes and much of it is really good. Um, both uh, Dr. Armstrong and I are very much into inflammatory skin conditions, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and others. And as I think everyone knows, the treatment for those conditions have completely changed. Because when we started with psoriasis, for example, or when I started, I shouldn't say we, <laughs> because I'm the old father, <laughs> she's not. <laughs> um, we used something called Gekkaman therapy, which is all day, every day, black tar treatment. We use uh, mostly topical therapy, phototherapy, and things like methotrexate, most dermatologists just stayed away from it. You know, so um, dermatology was very much lotions and potions. And it's been like that, even if you go back another 50 years, another 50 years, it's only in the last, gosh, maybe two, three decades that uh, internal medication become not only acceptable and widely used, but really change the way that the patient can get better, faster, and safer. So that, that's the good news. <laughs> but, but, the, but I have also seen the bad news, which is that when we went from things like methotrexate, which is dirt cheap, and topical medication, which were back then, not expensive at all. We really didn't have much problem getting approval, you know, for insurance company to pay for it. Now, these newer medications like biologic, now JAK inhibitors, they are so much more effective compared to like methotrexate, compared to like topical. And even safety, if I think of methotrexate with 14 black box warnings, <laughs> And six of them have to do with possible death, like formulin, hepatitis, and so forth. We have new medication that really have no black box warning and probably work two or three times as, as good. But the amount of paperwork we have to do to get these to the patients is like nothing we imagined decades ago. And, and I, I think that's the you know, that's the other side of it, which unfortunately is not so pleasant for the providers to work on getting the patients. Uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. Mark Level, you know, of New York, um, it, it, you know, he used to joke that we used to have prescription pad. Now we only have suggestion pad. <laughs> Because we only suggest whether the patient actually get the medicine or not is up to the insurance company. So anyway, I think that's the big change. Dr. Armstrong, do you have to comment? Yeah, please? if I may add, well, before Dr. Ku revealed his age, I thought he started dermatology <laughs> at five years old. Um, so I, I think a lot of has changed, and I completely agree with Dr. Ku regarding the trends in terms of uh, therapy for psoriasis. I think um, adding to that, there are two um, trends that I see that have evolved over time in dermatology. One is um, how our new graduates, you know, when they come out, um, they are oftentimes uh, seeking for uh, 
positions that are associated with larger institutions. So whereas um, I would say in the former years, people after they graduate tend to really think about going to private practice. Uh, I think these days, uh, the new more new graduates are looking for more uh, sort of institutional positions. And I think the second trend is how we consume information um, and how we uh, learn uh, information. And um, we've all been there where, you know, when I went to medical school, you had to be at the lectures in person to consume information in person. And now I'm sure, you know, when, when we go give lectures, there are like two students in the audience, but doesn't that mean that they, they're not digesting the information, they're digesting it on their own time and probably oftentimes a little bit better on demand. Um, so I think how we learn information and uh, um, how we uh, go have gone from, you know, flipping through the books, uh, Fitzpatrick and, and uh, Andrews, you know, when, we're, when we were in residency um, to, to now, uh, where I think residents and medical students are oftentimes going to digital means of acquiring that information, I think is another huge change. Uh, if I may just uh, add on to Please. what Dr. Armstrong mentioned about uh, once upon a time, most people went into private practice. Now it's becoming like rarity. You know, most people join some kind of a group um, and I think there's many reasons for that, uh, including the fact that um, operating your business and private practice is a business. I think it's becoming a lot more onerous, you know, from government regulation, insurance requirement, you know, all kinds of point of view. So it just make it more feasible for recent pro in, uh, graduate to, you know, just join a group. But and, um, I'm sure people have heard of like private equity group, right. some other group. Now, I'm not casting any kind of judgment right. whether it's profit driven or not. Right. But I have heard that uh, this tendency to have to see more patients with less time. Of and, and I think that is also a challenge for a lot of the dermatologists today on top of having to do all this pre-authorization <laughs> and insurance paperwork, fight with the insurance company, and have to see more patients in less time, I, th I think that makes it more difficult. Right, right, and I, and I totally agree. I think that just what I'm hearing is that there have been a lot of good changes over the past many years, but there are also some challenges. And some of those challenges um, have to do with, um, yeah, physicians having to do a lot of un unnecessary, unnecessary work like prior authorizations, um, uh, burdens with starting practices, fresh out of uh, residency where the average residence graduates with the over $150,000 in, in debt. And so uh, those are all some of the problems that physicians are facing today. Um, the next question I have, just sort of a segue um, into um, how artificial intelligence with respect to medicine, how, it has, how you think it's been received uh, by physicians, and then also how it's changed or practiced in any ways, and just a little bit about that. So when AI was first introduced through ChatGPT um, earlier this year, I think the reception has vacillated between a lot of fear and uncertainty, for example, are dermatologists going to become obsolete? Um, is ChatGPT going to take our jobs? Um, there are particularly um, articles that had to do with reviews or case reports by AI-generated content being better and more readable uh, compared to um, articles written by human authors. So things like that. Um, AI doing better on tests like USMLE exams, et cetera, uh, than um, humans. And so those are some of the uh, 
concerns that a lot of physicians have with regards to artificial intelligence. On the other hand, um, some of that response has been positive. Um, just speaking uh, to what you mentioned, Dr. Koo, some of this unnecessary work that physicians have to do. Is there a way that we could harness this technology to improve our workflows, improve our efficiency, automate things like prior authorizations? And so these are just some of the uh, things that people that are excited about artificial intelligence are excited about. That's what they feel like uh, we could benefit from. So the next question is, and this is for all the, the, the panelists here, what do you think the perception of AI in our field has been? In your experience, how do you think that we have welcomed AI or just perceived it? Do you perceive it as a threat or as, as something that could benefit both our lives and our patients' lives as well as our practice? Um, I'm actually kind of... Uh, technologically challenged kind of an old fat. <laughs> pretty awful with computer. You know, so I really cannot talk for you know, the dermatology in general. On the other hand, from what I understand, I think the fear that uh, somehow computer is going to replace us is, uh, from what I know, which is very little, unfounded. Because first of all, I don't think that the visual capability of the machine is there yet. And second is there's no way machine can actually touch you know, the, the skin to see if it's thick or not so thick, you know, if it's scaly or not so scaly. You know, so the diagnosis, I, I think it's gonna be a long time before the machine can come close to human. But as I was mentioning, some of the real pain the butt kind of situation today is more like pre-authorization. And, and that, I think AI can excel. Because when you apply for pre-authorization, you have to individualize it. It's not, like, you know, it's not like giving a patient a pamphlet about a treatment. You know, and and I, I think AI is gonna be fantastic and efficient and get, you know, get providers to um, not have to worry about that kind of work, and that would be fantastic. Yeah. Giving physicians more flexibility to do the things that they're trained to do and they enjoy doing. Right. Yeah. What about you, Dr. Armstrong? Any comments on that? Yeah, um, lots of comments, and I'm trying to think about uh, how to categorize uh, my comments. So, so first of all, um, I think uh, there's a lot of potential for good for artificial uh, or augmented intelligence. Uh, there's also potential for uh, limitations or pitfalls. Um, ultimately, I think AI really depends on the sources of information that it's built on. Um, so it's very important for that information to be accurate, current, um, and as well as uh, specific. So the usefulness of AI algorithms is really how specific it is to the question that you're asking. Uh, a few things. We mentioned about testing before where, yes, there are articles that show that uh, some AI algorithm can test better than, let's say, human you know, medical students or so forth, but there are also ones that shows the opposite. And, and why that's the case is oftentimes I think about the sources of information that the AI algorithms are fed, right? So if they're fed from um, a heterogeneous source where there can be outdated information or uh, information that's not true, um, so then, then the results will be more poor. Uh, completely agree with Dr. Ku about how AI can help us with uh, administration, right? Administrator work. But then the question there is, 
you know, do we, are there components of our health system that we can, um, steps that we can eliminate even, right, in the first place, you know? Um, so, so that's number, uh, another one. But very importantly, actually, patients, patient care, uh, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, we're all very much um, in the trenches where we, we receive patient messages and so forth. And I think we're all aware of the study where they showed that the AI was actually, um, uh, was uh, received better uh, than actual physicians putting in responses, right? Uh, by both patients and also blinded physician raters. So uh, in those cases, I think AI is actually very good in terms of conveying uh, emotional intelligence. You know, when, when you look at um, how AI uh, expresses things, and, and I use ChatGPT, all the time for, for different, you know, just different queries. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, it, it phrases things uh, in a way that really expresses um, some emotional intelligence that you wouldn't think something like AI would have. So um, so I think all this is very positive. Um, I think in Durham, there's definitely a gap because um, as a frequent user of more generalized AI, I would say, um, you know, oftentimes it doesn't even recognize the germ terms, right? So, so it's getting it wrong if you're dictating it. Right. And uh, um, so the output, you know, could be uh, much more uh, improved. If I may just uh, expand on what Dr. Armstrong mentioned about patient care. Uh, apart from the AI uh, helping us with the prior authorization and that type of paperwork, the other area that I think AI might be extremely useful is patient education. Because when we went from simple lotions and potions to something a lot more complicated, like jack inhibitor, biologics, patient education becomes even more critical. It, it, we have to tell patients better than what we used to. You know, well, put it on twice a day, don't put it on face umping and growing because it's a strong steroid. That's about all we had to do before. But now we have to explain about the dosage, the delivery. In, um, for example, biologic agents. I really like to tell patients, and I try to tell patients about phenomena of biologic fatigue, secondary failure, and when that means patients they do extremely well initially with an injectable biologic agent. But over time, it can lose the efficacy. And, and that phenomena can be a lot worsened if the patients think that they can quit. When, when they think they can slack off on their treatment, not knowing that uh, their own body can make biologic uh, uh, um, anti-biologic antibodies mm -hmm. because biologic agents are prote protein. Mm -hmm. but when we only have like 10 minutes per patient, right. we just don't have the time. But that kind of patient education need to be, or, or it's best served if it's individualized, not just handing out a pamphlet. Right. How, how do you think, uh, just to follow up on that, how do you think, in, in, how do you envision um, something like ChatGPT or DermGPT, which we'll talk about, um, helping a patient with that education process? Like, do you, in form of a video, like how can you individualize it for that patient? In your, um, in your, when you envision AI helping with that particular need, you know I actually have zero experience <laughs> with ChatGPT, <laughs> but yeah. from what I have heard, yeah. for example, writing letter of recommendation, yes. which has to be individualized. If you tell the computer, you right. know some key factors, right. 
then computer will generate something that looks like somebody wrote it, somebody who knew the, this applicant for years. Right. And, and, and that, that's the kind of thing we need when we try to individualize patient education depending on their risk factor, depending on their weight, their, and whether they're a smoker or non-smoker. So if, if we can just put some key elements and let, let the AI do the education, right. that would be fantastic. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Do you have, do you have any thoughts about yeah, that, Dr. Kamiger? I can definitely ch chime in on the AI piece. Yes. Um, so I, I could have said it better myself if Dr. Ku and Dr. Armstrong mentioned we're in the best time of dermatology because we have all these targeted therapies and we have ways to help patients without telling them, well, in four years, you might have to biopsy your liver or these things that we <laughs> right, had to do right. before. But at the same time, we have all these barriers in getting these medications, all these difficulties in practice, which is probably why a lot of new graduates also go into these groups. Because like in our group, we're, we're a big group. We have an entire group dedicated to doing prior authorizations, something that probably a private practice doctor just couldn't necessarily afford. And so you have like a biologic coordinator having a prior auth coordinator. So I think the place that will fix a lot of these things, it'll be technology in the future. So I really see that. And AI, of course, is the best technology we have. So I think there's definitely a space for that. The pitfalls mentioned are that the data has to be good. The right. data has to be the right place where you're looking because you can put in anything you want and get some answer out. But if you don't trust it, if it's not accurate, then it's not very helpful to you. Um, Derm GPT, as I mentioned, though, so I'll, I'll, mention, I'll talk a little bit about it. It's a, it's a, Please, that was actually going to be my next yes. question. <laughs> if you guys are okay with it, I'll yeah. just to talk about AI. Yes, yeah. the AI yes. question. So it is the first uh, generative AI product for dermatology um, that I've created, and it's a chatbot for dermatology, and it's specific because it has only dermatology information in it. It's peer-reviewed. It's the information that we as a dermatologist would source. It's what you would go to, except it's right at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to sift through a textbook, instead of having to go to PubMed and look up articles, these things that we know we want are there. And it's very carefully curated because even if you go to PubMed and you look for something, there might be a lot of articles that aren't necessarily what you want. Mm -hmm. So it's basically the brain of what dermatologists, trying to guess for your peer, mm -hmm. if they're trying to look up something, you could probably guess what they're trying to look up. So it's a source information, also decreases hallucinations and making up things that might not be true. So it's, it's factual. But the problems it's trying to solve, which I think will be a huge help, are basically replacing that Biological, biological coordinator, prior odds. So it, it can automate a lot of things that would have to have been done by a workforce that costs overhead. And I think hopefully we'll remove some barriers and 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 um, new doctors being able to start prior practices if they want and have these kinds of practices because they can easily answer my health online messages. Look up, like for example, if there's if you're a lot of prior auths get um, denied even for simple things like you might miss a step that you're supposed to put in the note. But if it's a new medication and. For in academics, I think it's easy to keep up with these things. As private practice, you might not keep up with all the new medications because there's so many coming out. Um, you might not uh, be able to keep up with the indications for what you need to put in a prior auth note. So, like for example, you have a parigo nodularis patient and a medication has a new indication, you can easily look up what should I put in my note? And it would tell you things like, 
put, you know, the BSA and what, what have they failed in the last 180 days, put how many nodules they have, like all these kind of specific things, because ultimately you don't want your prior auth to get denied for a silly thing, because a right. prior auth denial, we all know, is like right. no man's land. You don't want to exactly. go there. Exactly. It's a lot of faxes. It's yeah. a lot of MA calls. Yeah. Um, so, and, and my personal belief, and I don't know if this will pan out, but I actually believe we can sort of alleviate the prior auth situation by being successful at prior auths. Because I think if we are getting prior auths through very quickly, very efficiently, insurance companies will realize they're losing money on um, entire units running these things and they'll ease up some prior auth goes. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, it's a win-win to do these mm -hmm. things. And ultimately for your patients, they get they get medication sooner. Mm -hmm. So my my whole practice, for example, like I I basically can't get through clinic without doing GBT now just because it's so easy for me. I could also Google it. I could look up other things, but it's an extra few seconds. And in clinic, I, we, we are, I am a kind of practice where I do see a lot of patients. So um, if a message comes in, I put it in there and it, it does sound way better than what I would write. hundred <laughs> percent. It sounds better. Um, yeah. I read it. I proof it. My MAs might look things up and have a draft. And if it looks right, we'll send it to the message to our patients and it answers the right question. Prior auth help, board studying, it can generate questions. So a, a lot of different ways. But basically, I think it's, like Dr. Armstrong said, it has to be a good data source because otherwise you're going to get biased information or incorrect information. Right. For patient education, I think it's really important too. Like for example, we have all of the patient education handouts um, from the different companies and the different uh, groups that help patients with these things. And then those, those update all the time. So the links are live. So they'll, they'll update those. So they'll have the latest patient handout or the latest you know, patient coupon code or things like that. Um, but, but I think that that is a niche that I think going, we haven't had to do as much of it in the past, but I think going in the future, our tasks are increasing every day. So I think we need automated help because um, otherwise it's, it's really difficult to hire human beings to help with all of that. Also, it's just generally, even if you can afford it out of a private practice situation, it's hard to keep consistent staff and then just kind of uh, training everybody constantly on these things right. is hard. So Having a source of information in clinic, I think, is just something that we have to do. The other piece, and I'll, let, I'll pass on the mic, but um, the other piece I'll say is I think traditionally what's kind of led to a lot of burnout for physicians is a lot of technology has happened to us, but without us involved. Um, I, I did engineering before uh, medical school, so I have done a lot of health tech consulting and kind of seeing how these products develop. They're not always with the physician in mind because the people developing them are um, engineers and other, other fields, and they mean well, and they're well, um, they want to create a good product, but I think you can't create a good product until you're in there and seeing the problems every day. Um, so I would urge that more doctors actually become involved. If there is a technology being built for healthcare, it should be physician first, just like anything. And I think that's that's that will hopefully lessen burnout because a lot of our burnout is just around trying to figure out products that are sort of thrown at us and aren't, ex aren't an exact fit, so. I, I think, um, you know, one thing um, I, I wanted to just uh, sort of react to, and, and that I, I think that's such great information, Dr. Kamengard, that you just shared, is um, uh, sort of systems interoperability, right? So we have EMR systems, and what you said, you know, given such a great example of how, you know, you can't cannot not use uh, germ GPT during your practice, and I think, you know, a, a product such like that, like that. Um, if, if that can be integrated, for example, so we don't have to open up a separate browser, for example, um, to get the answers, uh, that would be something that could be very helpful and e even more time saving. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I think one uh, thing that, that Dr. Kamanga mentioned um, is staff turnover. You know, because every practice have that problem where you spend a long time training somebody, finally got it right, and then that person said, oh, I'm applying to nursing school, I'm applying to medical school, I'm applying to PA school, and they disappear. And, and, and then you have to start the whole thing from scratch. Now, I, I can imagine that if it's artificial intelligence, not gonna run away like that. <laughs> and and I, I think that's, that would be fantastic. Yeah. That, you know, uh, now, overall cost perspective, I can imagine that um, you know, AI is going to be more cost-effective than you know human being, um, you know, who can only work like certain hours in a day. AI might be able to work 24/7. AI is not, you know, once again not going to abandon you and disappear to some place. But 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 uh, two questions that I think we, you know I'm sure Dr. Kamanga is going to look into it very seriously. One, you know, is the technology there yet? And, and from what little I know, I, I think for things like pre-authorization, I'm pretty confident technology is there. The second is, you know, what, what is the actual cost relative to what, what we're doing right now with human beings? Now, uh, uh, Dr. Armstrong and I are highly supportive, but uh, we're not part of the development of this product. So um, on, only Dr. Kamanga can answer that, but I'm hoping that it's going to be affordable and, and make it cost effective. Yeah, can no, you answer and I'll that, just comment Kamaker? on that. Yeah, I think that, that's a really good point. So the AI cannot run away, but also it'll stay there and get smarter and smarter because it's generative AI. So the more we feed into it and the more peer-reviewed information that we put into it, it'll just get even better and better. And the more trials it has, uh, it gets better. So um, since ChatGPT has come out, more and more iterations of it have even come out. So the technology is really there now, which is really what's revolutionized everything in the last year. Um, if in, in the in, Even before ChatGPT, let's say a year ago or two years ago, if you were to run a, uh, a machine learning language model like this, you would take months to do a trial. And if you did, it would cost like $200,000 or something like that. I'm just making up numbers. But it would be, it was a very onerous task to teach something to the computer and you could teach one at a time. Um, so as you can imagine, like a, like a child or a toddler learning language, if you try to teach them every single concept, it would take forever, but the human brain can kind of make inferences. Like, well, I've seen that before and I've seen this and so maybe it's this and that's how language development happens and generative AI now mm. can, can and it mimic that. So it's, it's, it's so much more cost effective. Um, and it, it, I think I agree. I think the technology is there. The good thing with Durham GPT is actually it's free to everybody here this weekend. So <laughs> really, that's that's one of the things that I also believe in. I think there's so much technology that is um, handed to us as dermatologists containing dermatologic information, but then we're sort of being charged for it, which is something I I personally think it shouldn't really be. I think like scientific articles and and, and all of this should just the personal belief should just be more free and available. If you're treating a patient and this information will change how you would um, treat them or if you're learning you're trying to take the boards there shouldn't be educational barriers like uh, our students I, I know a lot of times they'll complain to us about the the board study questions now I'll have fees to them and um, those are just all added costs and costs are going up and up everyone has higher medical school and residents and debt and all of that so I think the affordability piece is very important.
That's fantastic. And just a follow-up question to that, Dr. Armstrong mentioned um, some of the limitations of AI with respect to dermatology. So either uh, information that's not very relevant to the question being asked, particularly when it comes to imaging-based AI. So, so the question I have for you, Dr. Kamiger, is how does uh, DermGPT um, help solve that issue of um, recognizing subtle differences in, for example, inflammatory skin disorders um, across different skin types, lighter skin versus darker skin. Like, is that technology there? And how can, so if actually, it's not, yeah. how can we contribute to that, that? That's actually a really, really good question because there's sort of the two different models of image-based AI and language processing, which is DermGPT is actually just language-based processing without trying to do the visual base. There's a lot of work being done around um, visual diagnosis of things and visual AI. This really, for, for me, it was meant to be a tool to help the dermatologist. Dermatologist is there, seeing the patient, touch the patient, done biopsies, has the diagnosis and just needs to get through the day, get the patient education, do the prior authorizations, write notes, my health online messages, on and on and on, all the things you have to do, residents, training, learning. Um, it's it's really meant to be sort of like you're just in your pocket, almost like, almost like a senior resident, I like to think of it, <laughs> who can just look things up for you and then while you kind of do what you're doing. Um, but it doesn't have any visual component. I don't know if there are different companies doing it. I don't know if the technology is really there with, with the visual. I've, I've seen the different, uh, different versions of the visual, but that I think I'm actually pretty confident I don't think can ever replace us. I think we're a little bit better than the, than what vis, the, the, the AI that can tell. Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction because, it, it, you know, what I'm hearing is that it adds to, it's another tool in our armatarium to improve our practice, but without that fear of AI replacing us or giving wrong information to a patient, which, you know, with AI, one of the advantages is that it's very accessible to patients, but we don't want a situation where patients are getting wrong information that negatively affects their life. So that's a great distinction. Um, so next question, this is actually our last question to the panelists. AI is only one uh, of the latest trends affecting our um, practice and the, the field of dermatology and medicine in general. Can you speak about any other trends that you think have the potential? Like, so we have the hundred years of practice behind us as a group, like looking onto the future, what other trends do you think um, has the potential to either disrupt or positively, positively impact our practice as dermatologists? Well, um, I'm not going beyond AI, but since we're talking about the future, you know, which could be like science fiction. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, we have companies um, that, well, you know, Castle Pharmaceuticals and others that actually take superficial scales not even a biopsy, mm. and able to figure out what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off, either for a particular patient with particular disease. You know, so we were talking about how AI's visual capacity, probably not as good as human being in terms of how we see and how we interpret in our brain. Right. But I can imagine a situation Way into the future, you know, I'm not trying to make anybody nervous who's practicing today. Way into the future, where AI might be able to see things that we cannot see. You know, what is under the skin? You know, what, what if AI, you know, has capability to look under the skin or maybe take minimal non-invasive sample 
and AI can see what genes are turned on and off for this particular patient. And that, what if that contributes to like making diagnosis? So we're not so relying upon you know, our senses, but we go beyond what is apparent to our eyes. Very much like long, long time, time ago, as I understand, medicine used to emphasize physical examination. You know, like, well, you know, if you touch the stomach, you know, is, is the thing round? Is it a little bit not round? Yeah. yeah. Well, nowadays we don't emphasize that because you can do MRI right. and you can see if it's round or right, not right, round. Right, 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 right. So we right. might get to the situation way into the future, yeah. you know, where uh, AI might have, might, might have the capacity to see things that we cannot see. Next question for you, Dr. Armstrong. Same question. Trends yeah. in the future. Um, you know, that's very interesting. I, you know, I, I think of AI actually not as a trend, but it's definitely something here to stay and only evolving. Um, I think certainly uh, our higher education or even, you know, element, I mean, we, we have kids, you know, at young, young ages, even seeing them and what their education will be like in the future will be very, very different. Um, so, you know, I think we've really gone far away from didactic, one directional uh, type of teaching to, um, to now very kind of case specific and then the ability to collate the different sources of information. And I think that, uh, that AI will help uh, them learn differently as well. So I think they will probably be a lot more comfortable uh, kind of growing up with AI and also our students as well, kind of being, uh, having AI sort of as uh, an, an, a very important accessory piece uh, because why memorize something if you know how to access it, right? We just have to make universal Wi-Fi uh, free. <laughs> And I'll just which, add which on. Which could be the next trend. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'll just add briefly to, I mean, to move yeah. on to the questions. Yeah. But um, I, I'm just going to emulate both of those answers. I agree. I think our new residents and medical students are different. And I think because technology has made them different, um, my little toddlers have iPhones. So I think they're going to be a different breed. They're going to learn a lot differently than, than the ways we did. And they're probably going to be able to cope with these changes and adapt a lot more quickly than right. we can. And then I also agree with Dr. Koof with um, personalized medicine. I think that's that's going to be a huge, huge trend. But yeah, I'll let you get to that. <laughs> No, that, that, that was it. I think it's time for questions now. Yeah. Yes, we have some in the Zoom room. Okay. The first one is, what are the costs for the DERM of implementing DERM GPT? Yeah, so actually currently we are running the beta uh, version of Derm GPT. It's launched actually this weekend, so it's launched today. Um, any dermatologist or dermatology provider can join now for free. Um, and, and, and once it goes out of the beta test, that, that crowd actually will be legacied in. So feel free to join now if you're interested in it. Sounds great. Sounds like we should all join now. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to. Just join. Is, oh, perfect. Is there another question? Yeah. Yes, a follow-up to that one, Dr. Farrow. What is the URL? Oh, it's, it's www.dermgpt.com. Awesome. Thank you. And we have another question from the room. What is the learning curve for using this product? Well, I mean, for me, I've kind of created it, so I think it's really fast, but I would love to actually get feedback on that. To me, it's very intuitive, but it's also, I've kind of like put my brain in it. So of course that would, <laughs> like, well, this is easy and this is quick. Um, but I think, you know, when I had my medical assistants in clinic kind of bring this on, they all immediately used it pretty, but they're also a very smart bunch of, 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 <laughs> of a really good group, but they adopted it very easily and started using it quite a bit. So hopefully it's not that difficult. To and, I, th I think it's pretty easy. And perhaps maybe a survey um, soliciting users, the user's experience could also help improve yeah. the usability over time too. 
and another one, and then we'll come into this room. Um, how similar does it function to ChatGPT and other similar AI? Yeah, so it's very different. It's the first generative AI um, platform with just dermatology information in, in it. It's also a very advanced version. So, and a, a lot of data that stopped maybe around like 2021 for ChatGPT, this is very updated. So it's updated and it's very specific and curated. So you might put something in ChatGPT and get a similar answer, but you may not because it has, it's, it's looking at everything and it has an, all the web and any article written by, anything or any person or blog that it can pull from. This really just pulls from peer-reviewed information that a dermatologist can trust. So that, that would say, I think that's the main difference. Um, it's constantly updated and it's just highly curated. Awesome, and while we're waiting for more from the room, maybe. Oh yeah, perfect. Okay, so we'll turn it to our live audience here. Um, any questions for our panelists? So I do have a question for the panelists. Y'all have all talked about trends in medical education, and I was just wondering what are some of the trends that you've observed for medical schools or med medical students in terms of AI, maybe their utilization in research projects or even on rotations or your interactions with them? Good question. Maybe really good question for Dr. Armstrong. Yeah, I, I think if they do use it, they are keeping it as a secret from us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I actually encourage it as a kind of augmenting um, their learning as well as um, their communication. So um, if they're using it, you know, I would say just make sure you proofread it to make sure it's accurate because sometimes it depends on how the information is fed to it or the specificity of the information. Um, you will notice that it will come out sort of uh, putting in sort of very nice prose of what you said, but it may not organize it the way one wants to. So um, so I do think it's very helpful. Um, I, I, I do think actually in terms of uh, the evaluators and you know if, if there needs to be evaluation, um, it, it could be very dif difficult because we actually may not know if you know, if chat GPT was used or not. Um, so I wonder in the future if people need to certify that, you know, AI was not used in writing this essay or, or writing this research paper. But um, I do have to say, I've, I've had conversations with uh, journal editors. They actually, um, they have now their guidelines of the use of chat GPT for journal articles. And um, they said that you, they, you can use them for, um, essentially for, you know, improving grammar of the paper and the flow. Um, so they actually accept that. So, and I think that's actually very helpful for many scientists who uh, English may not be their native language, uh, but they have a very, you know, scientifically rigorous work that they want to present. And so that they're not hindered uh, by English, for example, not being their primary language or whatever the primary language of the publication is. So I think it can be useful in that regard. Uh, but we do want to also understand what is original work coming from from the authors versus um, really sort of uh, majority of it being uh, being generated by AI. Just to add on that, um, I'm pretty confident that all the manuscript I have received recently and in the past from you know medical student, from fellow, from others um, were not by AI. And the reason I know that is because there are plenty of grammatical errors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, any other questions from our audience? 
One from the chat? Yes, okay. we've got another from the chat. Will the program expand to other specialties, say spine GPT or neuro GPT? That's a great question. Sure, in my Dr. spare time, I could. <laughs> well, you know, that with this, I think this the, what was, what's special about this to me is because dermatology is what I what I know, and I, I really, um, I think, well, I think that's the difference between physicians leading maybe markets and um, non physicians, because the obvious thing to like a the business would be yes, of course, it would expand, but I think these things it's so important that they be done by the specialty, they be done by somebody in that specialty, or if let's say this expands, that you have a team of like orthopedic surgeons or neurosurgeons are working on it. Because if the data is just something they think is going to be good enough, it probably won't be good enough. Just like a lot of the technology we have now. It's like they're, you know, like our, um, uh, like, uh, like EHRs and things like that. They're there, they do the job, but they weren't really created with us in right, mind. Right, so. Right. Yeah. so I think all of us being involved with uh, the production of new technology just benefits us all and benefits our field. But if there's any any neurosurgeons or you watching who want to do that project, <laughs> collaborations, just, just email collaborations. Me. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, any other questions? No more in the room, and we have about four minutes left. Okay, we have, we do have one in the audience. I have one more. Um, uh, so I appreciate the clarification of how Durham GPT compares and differs from ChatGPT. Uh, when you were creating Durham GPT, was that with the the odd targeted audience of being dermatologists, or do you feel like this could apply to a broader audience of other specialty like myself or um, other ancillary staff like medical assistant nurses, you know, and PPAs? That, that's a really good point, actually. I think with, with us, we was just think board-certified dermatologists, and, and that's our world. But really, I, I have a lot of my friends who are pediatricians or internal medicine doctors who commonly, and, and this happens with all of us, send you a photo, ask you a question, like, how do you prescribe this? or how do, these, these questions that really AI could actually answer pretty easy. Well, maybe not the photo part, but, you know, the, if asking how do you prescribe this medicine, how do you get it covered, or the first-line medicine wasn't covered, what would be second-line? These kind of common questions... I think we share a lot of patients among specialties. It's not just dermatology. And skin conditions are so, everybody sees skin conditions, I think. So it, it could actually, could expand. Um, I think for our like major workflow, I, I think of the dermatologist seeing 30 patients, 35 patients a day potentially and needing to kind of use all of these tools. But really if it's just looking up information and you're going to use like ChatGPT using Google and it's derm related, using DermGPT will be more precise because it'll pull from the dermatology peer reviewed literature. I think that's a great point. I mean, we do have um, uh, uh, platforms like UpToDate that a lot of physicians across all specialties use, primary care doctors, pediatricians. Um, and some of the information that I see on there, it can be, I mean, it's, it is specific to derm, but it's very broad, maybe not as specific to like what I need. I just need a quick yes or no question. So maybe having something that is just derm specific, um, but can still answer questions that some of these specialists have. For example, like what's the first line treatment for acne? A lot of primary care doctors and pediatricians treat acne. And so having that information at the tip of their fingers, I think would be a good thing for both our field and all the other specialties that merge with dermatology as well, specifically for the patients. I think that is our time. Any others? No more in the Zoom room. Well, wonderful. And any from the audience?
Well, wonderful. Thank you so much to our panel of experts. Um, and thank you for our, our uh, viewers, both in person and online. This has been a wonderful and really informative session. I particularly am excited about the future of dermatology with respect to AI. I feel that it could only bring great things to better improve our livelihoods, improve our workflows, efficiency, and also benefit the patient. So thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Carlson. Of course. <laughs>